if we work from the implications of bodies being a political fiction and their oneness being a one of the of the markers of that it's very easy to see how this oneness is accelerated and intensified through uh, the way computers technology works on bodies Femke Snelting is a Flemish artist and designer who works at the intersection of design, feminism, and free software. She's a member of Constant, a nonprofit artist-run organization based in Brussels. She is also part of Possible Bodies, a research project developed in collaboration with Hara Rocha, which is the main topic of our conversation. Possible Bodies questions and problematizes the formulation, conception, and rendering of bodies across different 3D technologies, such as modeling, tracking, and scanning. Their affirmative critical research draws attention to the ways in which these techniques end up implementing and even amplifying a host of prejudices based on race, gender, class, age, and ability, which far from being circumstantial, are woven into the actual source code of all sorts of applications. Snelting, Rocha, and their collaborators collect and document instances of these problems as a strategy for thinking about their roots and implications, and also to eventually file what they call bug reports. As Snelting says, it's not about making algorithms fair. It's about changing the systems that enable those algorithms to operate in the first place. We talked to Femke Snelting about embodiments, optimization, and 3D disasters, about the possible and the probable, parametric interfaces and open standards, and about disobedient action research. In 2015, we started the project Possible Bodies, and we started an inventory. Uh, we started to collect items that we felt were related to this this very broad question: What is going on with 3D? Uh, slowly puzzling our way through the different uh, problems we saw, the different areas of problems, the different norms we, we saw, the different disciplines that were involved. Because we, I mean, it went from animation, to uh, gaming, to uh, legal practice, to biomedical imaging, to because we started also to see that these the problems with 3D were actually interconnected. So one of the problems, for example, is in the volumetric rendering of so-called bodies, and bodies in this case is uh, not limited to human bodies at all. In the rendering of so-called bodies, there's the assumption of an absolute inside and outside. So the way the digital objects are rendered is based on this, yeah, I say assumption, that we have something that is 
the outside, then there's something Im immaterial that is the skin, and then there's the interior, which is void, basically. And from that, from that assumption uh, that we can render so-called bodies in 3D space that have something to do with the bodies outside of that space, start like many, many problems of uh, reinforcing autonomy of those so-called so bodies, of rendering after the fact the relation between what can be perceived from the outside and what is happening on the inside. Big shortcuts in movement, for example, like how movement is mapped on very crude skeletons. And it's all about optimization of computation, etc. But it's based on this idea that you could have a crude inside and a high-res outside. So, so also the sort of disconnect between many, many terabytes of data and of, of resolution and of the ability to zoom in or turn around or move fast or have many, many pixels. And at the same time, a very crude modeling of what those uh, bodies are uh, supposed to represent. So this is just one of the, uh, the very obvious problems that if you ask anyone involved in those technologies, they will, of course, recognize that this is not as uh, uh, as we know bodies outside of uh, virtual space. But then this this assumption is so deep in the way those techniques work that they then fall away as soon as the as the as the machine is switched on or as something has to be uh, produced or. Um, because it's a it's an assumption that that is very difficult to undo in the way those technologies operate right now, but it it then of course you can imagine how it brings back if you if you port that that distinction to for example biomedical imaging where three D technologies are used uh, quite intensively, it also brings with it a certain idea of how human bodies are existing in the world. It's very easy to to think through the interconnections that bodies live with as an afterthought, as something that is rendered after, that is added, that's an add-on that can be left. For example, uh, most basic models have no hair because it's just it's difficult to do, so it's cumbersome. So it's not a problem to do hair that looks, you know. <laughs> um, but it's, it's always a bit like the thing that comes after. But of course, the way hair interacts with the inside and is very important. It's not an af afterthought. So you see that those kinds of you know, almost cliches, like it's almost too, too silly f to talk about because it feels like everyone knows that this is the case. But uh, in these environments, actually that uh, those types of separations are just re-operating, re like are, are made operable again. That sounds a bit absurd. I mean, we were trying to explain a model or how we were really one day laughing, like really rolling on the floor with laughter because we were looking at um, 
you know, these images of, of like flying through the body, you know, like you, you go through the intestines and you see the, the heart pump and then you go, you know, this kind of, um, which is usually like, uh, like re, like images generated. F I mean, nowadays those are images generated from um, uh, CT scans or MRI scans. Uh, so there's a very nauseating connection between let's say, imaging and, and uh, imagination there. And suddenly we realized that, of course, in order to have an image that is somehow attractive or even works, you have to invent light. So we, we were suddenly like looking at these images and saying, like, there's an inner sun. There's, there's, the sun is shining inside this body. And we tried to explain to people what, how strange that actually is. And it just, it doesn't really work, this conversation. Uh, I think the humor was a bit lost. Just to be clear, like the fact that we sometimes have to really laugh with these uh, techniques. At the same time, uh, they are operative. So they're not without implications uh, in the world. It seems like its ridiculousness actually works for it because it can, it is a Jekyll and Hyde. It can seem hyper computational and super technical and very advanced. At the one hand, and on the other, on the other hand, it's always the laughing stock. There's always uh, moments that you can see the glitch, or YouTube is filled with uh, samples of how it does not work. And it's interesting, like you ask about what happens when you talk to practitioners, that depending on the argument they try to make, it's the it's the one side or the other side that you get presented. But the fact that both actually have an effect on how in a very direct sense, not even in the, only in the representational sense, but also in the sense how agriculture is changing right now, how border policing is now under the spell of 3D vision to try and work with um, like, uh, areas with lots of trees. So they use LiDAR techniques to uh, find uh, people hiding in the woods. I mean, so it's, uh, it's, it's and that's, that's part of its problem. I think it's that it's, um, it, it is, it's quite slippery. I'd like to talk more about maybe this tension between possible and probable that we find, not so much how it's wrong or not working, but how there's promises of other visions, of other imaginations, but because of the continuum these images function in, often we end up with what we call the probable. So one example is that it's quite normal to find a manual talking about how you can generate different worlds and that the point of origin <laughs> is where the world starts. 
So in a way, like if we think about uh, situated knowledges or, or about it's it's like when you read this, you it's quite exciting to think about how the world somehow is worlding from the point of origin. That this is a sort of way that uh, 3D objects are are put into the virtual world. It's also quite banal. It's not special or like a, a, a quantum physics to have multiple worlds in your animation, which is, I think, is really interesting because these, each of these worlds can have their own frames of reference, their own parameters, their own uh, mode of operation, which is, if you think about how you test out complex collectivity somehow, this is, uh, this is uh, yeah, a space of exploration. There's possibility there. But often in the, at the moment that the file needs to be rendered, the light needs to be plotted, the only thing that can be imagined is actually to come back to classic perspective, Euclidean uh, organization of uh, uh, in front and in, and in the back, uh, uh, pseudo-gravity, um, uh, 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 the inner sun, all these kinds of norms of yeah, how images are done uh, are somehow projected back and the space of possibilities is somehow brought back into the probable, the predictable. I mean, if we think about resource management and if, uh, and efficiency, or optimization even, I mean, the question is always optimal for who, efficient for who, or for what. So there's politics in those those pragmatics. Obviously, what needs to go fast means that somewhere else. Uh, some things might not be fast uh, if we only think about like material resources used to power these systems. What we see is a surprising, let's say, alignment of modern paradigms of what counts as efficient, beautiful, useful, worth attention in an industrialized world. Uh, so it really follows those, those politics, I would say. And so to claim a politics that is about possibility or that's about uh, interstice uh, or that tries to uh, think with complexity, not in the eyes of, the, let's say, the computer system, and because there's complexity, obviously, but in the sense of, of the ways that uh, different ways of life intersect or complicated questions need to be asked about the implications of these systems, uh, beyond today or tomorrow, we see that there's a clear alignment around uh, the industrial power of those those systems. And uh, it is, uh, like we suspected it when we started asking these questions, but it's, uh, we haven't been um, uh, disappointed. <laughs> As I said, I come through through these questions from free software activism and from also a work for standards, uh, for public standards, open standards, because I think these are the infrastructures of how we make the world and they cannot be only in the hands of uh, 
um, of big players. Of uh, there needs to be a possibility for to interrogate them, but also to to may, maybe build up, uh, upon them. So I could say that I'm for standards, for standards that are public and and can be uh, debated and can be changed if necessary or replaced. I mean, it's always when the standard is unchangeable, when there's no read-write access whatsoever. I mean, I know that these things are slow to change. It's not like something that happens overnight, and even when you try really hard, you might not make any difference because there's quite some interest around these standards that are not just the public, um, but that are financial, uh, are about keeping power in place, etc. Like one of the first objects we started to look at in um, with possible bodies was uh, uh, like a really not so glamorous software called Make Human. It's a small tool that is used by modelers to make quick avatars. So if I mean if you do want to do Pixar style stuff, you, this is not where you go. But if you want to do either quick prototyping or or you you want to make a game in a week then this m might be something uh, you use it's open source uh, so it meant that we could look at the source code as, as well uh, and our interest started because of its interface that is a is a like a, a usual uh, naked uh, humanoid and a set of sliders that ask you to modulate uh, different parameters. So, first parameter, gender. So, this didn't even say male or female on, uh, it's just the gender slider, and by operating it, you started to recognize that, how it's, which is kind of fascinating because the first, uh, let's say, message is uh, gender as a continuum, which is kind of, was surprising. But then, of course, in the second, past you understand that no 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 it's it appears uh, as a as a continuum but it is of course it's like absolutely binary because it's the like interpolation between two uh, two extremes uh, the next is was something like uh, age weight muscularity and then the last is race and so there's a really complicated work of standards here in the sense that on the one hand the expe expectation of a digital tool now like often is that there is a, some kind of set of sliders uh, that you can uh, freely uh, play with then as these sliders are usually horizontal so they have they're actually binary but they so this is where possible and probable already starts to come in like at the first impression you you can make anything you want but the second step is actually to understand that this is about uh, setting up gender as a as a binary so we started of course to investigate what was going on with the the race uh, sliders because it, i mean which meant that you could do there was two sliders so you could do combinations of two racial categories and then you start to see that so we, we started to look into the the history uh, version history of the software to see when this came in and, and, and what the responses were. And then you realize that actually they were relying on data set, academic data sets from, uh, let's say, 
like close to eugenic, like yeah, like eugenic data sets that are going around right now, not uncritiqued, and uh, and so their their sense of that something might be wrong was completely absent. They felt like they had the right data that was updated, that was correct, that was academically verified, and they were basically implementing that data in the software. So it's it's not even the standards of what what counts as a Caucasian. It's also the standard of thinking that this is all right, that this type of data is actually can be used for this and uh, should be actually. So yeah, the the implementation of that slider just passed, and there was some pushback, and then it was like, yeah, no, it's already it's already in the software, so can't change anymore. So there's another standard is that progress should be had. <laughs> that, you know, there can only be a next version and, and there is no way back. Uh, that some things might need to be undone radically and, and undesigned is also in free software environments that technically have the means and the, and the political setup to make those decisions are actually feel more committed to that linear uh, path than um, the possibilities that are in free software to actually have this discussion, not only amongst coders, but also with people that have something at stake with, with how these so-called bodies are being rendered. Like if we think about complexity and about space for many different types of life and non-life, the possible is not a luxury. As uh, somehow a space for that which is not yet known, or is not yet is not not yet known, or will never be known, uh, and does not have to be known. So it's politically important for the work. I do with others, to keep that space alive. Not just as a, in a sense of speculation, but as uh, also as a, as somehow a, the companionship of that which might not have to be explained or uh, explored or uh, reined in or controlled, uh, but is needs to urgently exist. When working with technology, let's say in the in the wide sense, and especially when you think about uh, technology for machine learning, with that, that implements machine learning or does is under the spell of algorithms, or there's often this 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 promise of the possible being there, and we think about systems that can think for themselves, or and. I think, like for us to to bring those two uh, poles somehow uh, to the table, is to keep asking whether we're actually seeing a possible, or we're seeing a probable, and probable would be that which follows uh, the lines of power, uh, um, uh, the, the historical colonialisms, the 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 gender separation, but also the way expertise is set up, for example, like who who can decide. And so we we are really trying to keep space for the possible within computation. So we're we're absolutely not anti-technology. 
but also not to not to fall for the the probable disguised as the possible and those things need to be addressed and also need to be rethought undesigned and which is not an easy one because if you think about for example a separation or or pulling things apart this is like a like a, i mean from the binary is is the is the ideological underpinning of uh, of computational systems that's not true of course it's not true i mean a system like computation is not binary as such it's been made binary um, and this is where where there's exciting work to do there's because uh, in the modulation between zero and one there's a whole world um, and this is uh, yeah where we might find the possible <laughs> If you think about how zero and one is produced, uh, is actually by, and this is hard to explain without drawing, but it's the modulation from positive to negative of, a, uh, of an electron. But it's a modulation, it's a move. And so there is a, is a work being done, and I, I mean, I'm not an electrical engineer, but I, we've we really try to understand what's going on here is is there's the creation of what is called the forbidden zone so you 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 decide to only filter out the state of the electron when either positive or negative and everything in in between you declare forbidden zone and from that moment on it is much easier to work with binarity someone that's listening that actually does computational systems might like uh, find this a bit crude when I say this, but I think sometimes this is what we need to do. Uh, so there's there's a lot of work being done in order for the binarity to be easy. But you can imagine that if that's your building like building block, from there on, separation segregation becomes only easier the the further you get uh, away from this sort of bit flipping moment. So, yeah, I think, of course, quantum computing is not easy. <laughs> but it might be necessary, or it might be something to take serious, not as a, as a kind of pyrotechnic flourish or, you know, like a kind of Baroque uh, excitement about those things that are new and not there yet, but more in the sense of, I mean, it sounds very... <laughs> sound very obvious but if computation is has something at stake in efficiency as in speed as in predictability as in easy separations as in no ambiguity as in no confusion as in no complexity at the, at the end it means that we might have the wrong uh, system in place because <laughs> i think what we need is tools for dealing with complexity. And we need and this tools that are accessible tools to deal with complexity. Yeah, when you think about the politics of, of, of how we want to live life, it's always against reduction and simplification and, and hard borders. I mean, at least, let's, no, let's not say it in general. Let's say 
in where I work and with the people I work with, we're trying to stick to, we, we're committed to complexity. Complexity not as a, as a high-end expertise, but complexity as something that is, that is, that is life. Life is complex. So then the issue is that these computational systems from uh, the recorder you're recording with now to uh, the mobile phone I just switched off to um, the system that regulates the lights here, they're very much intertwined with, I mean, a part of that complexity. So I think there's, there's, there's sort of a double move. I don't know. I'm thinking out loud here. But uh, is, at the one hand, to take these maybe crude systems into that complexity and to sort of think about their implications as part of life, on the one hand. And on the other hand, to not let go of the possibility of, let's say, a technology that is not aligned with separation, but is aligned with uh, complexity. So that sounds very abstract, but I mean, when I say complexity, I might mean something else than when uh, uh, Amazon says complexity. So, I mean, I think that's, that's maybe important to say. <laughs> so, for example, just to, to describe something from uh, constant practice, so the other collaboration that I'm, uh, I'm working in, uh, with in Brussels. We've been organizing for a few years a situation where we bring together people with different types of expertise to try and think about the implications of technology. It can be networks, it can be very specific. For example, we've been looking at what aging does, aging of technologies, but also aging of uh, technologies for aging bodies uh, and how these different timelines, broken pacemakers, for example. So often we would work, of course, with digital tools in physical spaces. We got a bit annoyed by the fact that when we wanted to pass around files, we either had to get USB stick and then go from one to one, or we would use people would use like cloud servers servers somewhere in Finland or whatever to upload their their image, then download again into the person next. Uh, so there's a kind of complexity. That's the complexity, the Amazon complexity, where you think like this doesn't make any sense. So we started to work with a local server, like just from knowing how a server like a, like a works, I mean, like Amazon, but then uh, small, and that could we could plug in in the room that people could connect to and leave their files on. And this became a sort of digital companion in physical collaborations. Of course, it meant that you, that you were not using Google Drive. So in that sense, more complicated or less easy to implement. But once you change the habits, which that's the hard part, is actually much more pleasant. And it meant that different people started to get curious about, but what is this server doing? How can I take it home? How can I rebuild it? Uh, what does it mean to have this plug? Or And so we were also changing the curiosity and expertise around those technological objects. So this, this, this is the type of stuff I'm talking about. Which is, it's not easy as in um, the way many <laughs> contemporary tools and interfaces are, are promising and suggesting that where easy is, but easy in the sense of, of uh, down to earth and quite mundane, 
not always reliable, but in general, quite okay. <laughs> The continuum between culture and nature comes up a lot around the work we do with possible bodies. For example, right now in agricultural industries, machine learning and, and LiDAR scanning is being used for what they call yield optimization. And we started to see how in, let's say, computational renderings of nature, there's both a comp like a comput computational rendering of nature and there is a natural rendering of computation. <laughs> In the sense that uh, there's, let's say, two sets of almost romantic images of where nature is like computing, like think about Fibonacci and, and, and like how people are super excited about uh, fractals and, and, and like snowflakes that look like something generated by a computer and and like lately I was I was finding images of um, mycelia uh, where like whole departments of computer science are completely doing their research on how they can generate computer generate actually these patterns so that you know to to somehow in a very odd way let's say want to confirm the continuum but in a very reduction reductionist way reducing way, which kind of was a bit confusing for us how to speak about this, because in a way, when there's this excitement about generating nature in computers, or you would say, like, there's in some way, there's there's the continuum at work. But if you look, of course, closely, you see that it's, um, there's a really a, a desire to produce a certain type of nature and a certain type of continuum that is harmless, that is, uh, for example, like the excitement about slime molds. I mean, just two days ago, someone again explained me how great slime molds were and how fantastic as a, as a, because they are interconnected, blah, 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 and they're smarter than computers. <laughs> because they can figure out the, I don't know what it is, the Japanese subway system quicker than, than the computer algorithm can. So. There's something really strange in the in the way the continuum does and does not uh, function in the relation between different worlds. Um, so on the surface there is this this direct connection, but then if you look at, for example, how in yield optimization, basically systems are figure out to individualize trees, target them, check their uh, yield. So how. Uh, they they start with mangoes. It's easier <laughs> easy because they're nice and big and round, you know. Uh, so there's lots of research on on mango trees. So you individualize. So the system will check the tree, scan the fruits, count the fruits. Because what else can can you do as a computer? Then uh, measure their size. Then keep check of what um, uh, chemicals were put in the ground, and then you you modulate until you have the optimum of yield per tree. I mean, all this is, of course, sounds like a collaboration, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's hyper-violent the way, um, in a way, an ecosystem is completely ignored and, and erased uh, from this, uh, yeah, this so-called relationship. So it's not always what it seems, somehow. Also, if you look closely at people that speak about 
that continuum or that represent it in images, you will see versions of the generated mycelia. And I think it's really scary how this is very difficult to critique because uh, it's also a way that people find, find access, find somehow a relation to systems that seem too alien to relate to. There's really, we found back the notes just now because we're in the process of making a, a book uh, on when we were deciding the, the device somehow that, that we needed to um, start thinking together about uh, what is going on with 3D. Um, and so we went through like, okay, is it more like a collection or do we need uh, like to make a mapping or is it an archive of different things or... And we realized that like the intuition of, of for the research was very strong, but uncalibrated in the sense that there were situations that we knew that we wanted to look closer at, there were there was thinking that we felt was related, there were artists and artworks that we that somehow were speaking to us. So we decided for the inventory as a as a kind of in a very pragmatic sense of like a shopkeeping <laughs> like a a keeping track of uh uh, what came in, so it's also in, a, in 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 chronological order. Um, we haven't taken anything out. Uh, it's just how it came. So we have kept track of the objects we were thinking with, and that that is sometimes an interview, sometimes uh, a software manual, sometimes uh, just a screenshot of something. Um, we wanted to do that in this way because we're working together and at a distance. So we also needed something simple, complex but simple, uh, that could hold the complexity, but at the same time was uh, easy to manage and would, would not take too much, let's say, infrastructural attention. And yeah, we were always a bit awkward with the like because of course inventory is like inventing also right? so it, it has the uh, that route uh, but we decided to to take it on in its in all its crudeness almost uh, and what it started to do is that it at the one hand became also a resource for others not as a reference because it's not like it's sometimes like some things are just like two words or or like sometimes even a title because we like later we should think about this and others are are super uh, developed or have become part of performances or texts or uh, um, uh, yeah, stories so others started to think with us with these objects so they started to like like do other research with it or other projects uh, and for ourselves it became a way to yeah to do let's say guided tours almost. So sometimes physically, like we would, like, I don't know, in a, in a group of people that wanted to also think about these, uh, these questions, we would pick a series of items and we would either improvise or make more performative guided tours. Uh, and then we have written two, three texts in that mode where we picked 
four or five items that that together then started to make sense. So, I mean, it's not that we just picked it and then it worked uh, because we, yeah, as we saw our notes, it was quite a discussion also about the politics of this this device. Um, but we wanted something that was quite mundane, modest also, in a, so not suggesting more than what an inventory does. So, for example, there's a, a work by a uh, French-Belgian artist, uh, Pascal Barrette. Uh, I mean, I call it a work, but it's it's um, it's an object that she made somewhere in the in the margins of a research residency in Tokyo, where for the first time she was given like had her hands on a on a 3D scanner, like a like a thing that you can hold and then move in the space with, so you can go around objects basically. So she's a Latourian, her, her, like well-read in Haraway, interested in nature cultures. Um, and so she started to experiment with uh, scanning the, like a bush outside of the sort of building that she was uh, working in. Like a, like a, like a, like a yeah, bush with flowers, I mean. And uh, the scanner was uh, like a consumer I mean, still, st these things are still expensive, but not like high end or whatever. And uh, so, in order to deal with the the leaves and the and the flowers and whatever, it so it was doing two things. It was uh, like an image scanner, so the rendering of the skin, so the sort of photographic rendering, was quite naturalistic. So you could you could detect this is a plant, whatever. But the volumetric rendering was completely algorithmically hallucinated. Because the scanner did not have the, uh, let's say, the algorithms in place or the the resolution uh, to detect like what was before and behind, what was a shadow and what was actually a leaf. Uh, so the object that she ended up with uh, was uh, like a blob, basically. So she she had to reduce the ob the the scan to the size of the of the printer because yeah the bush was like this and the printer was like this so uh, you just that's what you do with digital files you just like reduce so she ended up with this like weird blob with all the scaffolding like uh, rendering of let's say a bush at another size with like different layers of yeah a technical helper somehow that had gotten it wrong or not uh, and had generated something that that was quite fascinating and so that object has become uh, something we have thought with a lot physically because we had a uh, we had one uh, with us in uh, for one of the rotations in Stuttgart and another artist designer we've been also conversing and thinking with is uh, Simon Nikil um, this is someone that comes through, I think, graphic and object design, but started to be interested in in 3D rendering. So she actually learned, like, taught herself to um, uh, model. So she uh, makes uh, 3D objects and 3D, mainly movies, films. And again, it's not so much maybe with her, like, the end products. Although we had some conversations around it, trying to understand what she was was working with, uh, but she, in her research, came across two things that we, for us, were really, yeah, um, important 
moments. One is that she tried, started to think about the use of 3D renderings in court cases and the way decisions on what gets rendered and what not and what is, like for example, if you think about, so she was working on a court case that the, the person um, accused of murder, I think, uh, was wearing a hoodie and this was, so in the rendering, the hoodie is like in, in full detail. But then the houses are like, you know, like it could be, I don't know, a Lego or, or cardboard. Uh, but then somehow, for some reason, the grass is also very precise. And of course, these, these kinds of decisions have, have implications for how you can uh, take this material as for truth, you know, as a, as a stand in for truth and what that, uh, what that means. So, so yeah, uh, her work on parametric truth, and you can imagine how that somehow talks back to the possible and the probable, uh, is being important. Uh, another work she did when we were looking at biomedical imaging, uh, and we were following the trail into the uh, Visible Human Project, I don't know if I need to tell the story, but uh, like the early days of of, of uh, CT scanning, so uh, computer tomography, they've played back the computational experiment onto an actual body. So talk about nature cultures. This is maybe a good example, where literally the MRI scan or CT scan happens in like in a way in like a, it's an imaginary slicing through. So you 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 image per like per slice. And so in this early days when they didn't have reference material, uh, the American Medical Library of Science bought themselves, well, got themselves donated two corpses and they froze them and then sliced them and scanned them in order to have a, like, a real life version of what they were already computationally generating. So while we were trying to understand what this meant and how to think about the, yeah, the implications um, one way and the other way, like the implications of doing this on a frozen corpse for computation, but also how computation was actually cutting the corpse and making inv invasive imaginations. Simone was chasing um, the models that were scanned to standardize I think American, like uh, in in clothing industry, there's lots of 3D scanning now. Like when you order online, you can have your body double made, and then uh, your clothes will always fit. This is like, uh, and so the the sort of measurement standard for this was done through a large scanning project ten years ago, and she was finding back the models, the actual persons that uh, were were being scanned for this project. Uh, so. In another way, she was sort of trying to understand the relation between the, the actual bi biological specific on, but also then the, the projections of standardization already on what models were picked and how they were uh, scanned uh, onto computation and the other way around. So it's this, this back and forth that I think we, uh, uh, yeah, uh, we're interested in.
complexity is not about a lack of data. I think this is one of those those possible probable flips uh, that we're trying to make. So again, like if I go back to the example of the gender slider in Make Human, of course it's clunky and it looks terrible when you try to go between, yeah? Uh, but that's that's not the point. When we looked at the actual software, we saw that it was literally interpolating between a male model and a female model. You can put all the resolution you want, but we, we, we remain within the probable binary of a gender as either female or male. And then everything else has to stay within. So this is not a resolution issue. This is a dimensional issue. Because of course you could have uh, more precise models, you could have, uh, but you still, we were we are still looking at uh, a slider between A and B, and um, I mean it's a very blunt example this, but I think it's it is often the the promise of once we have more data, this problem will go away. This is what we're saying. This is not the case. It, whether we look at let's say low tech systems or high tech it's not if we have more computing power that uh, complexity will appear the problem is that complexity is a, an afterthought